Blog Talk Radio. It's Wednesday afternoon and we're excited to be on the air. Your hosts for today's show are Robert Brining and Jack McEnroe. They will be taking your calls and speaking out on the topic of the week. You're encouraged to call in and share some of your life experiences. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That's 347-215-9442. Welcome to Paz IM Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Paz IM Radio. I am your host, Robert Brining, joined by my co-host, Jack McEnroth. Jack, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, it's like crickets in the chat room. Like you were just saying, where the hell is everyone? I don't know. Yeah, they usually, last show that we had, we had a, uh, on Sunday we had a small turnout, but it ended up getting a lot of listens. Uh, you know, yeah, and well, and then the, the Wednesday, last Wednesday, the chat room was like really crowded, so I don't know. Right. Maybe it's people are, are burnt out from pride or something, or I don't know what. <laughs> That's right, because you just went had that up here, didn't you? Yeah. How'd that was, go? Well, it's nice. It's like it's just a, a it's a free for all. <laughs> but no, it's super fun. The weather finally cooperated. We had the basically the worst June in history. I think it rained like 28 out of 30 days or something ridiculous like that. So, but it was beautiful, and I had a lot of friends from out of town, so that was really fun. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. The weekend doing uh house things. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Even why? Cleaning the house and things like that. Actually, I oh, I love that. cleaning the house. Yeah, it's <laughs> always good. But uh, one thing I wanted to let you know, because I don't know if you knew about this, is that um, they do um, they have a section on Blog Talk Radio where it's like the most popular shows. And when I first started doing the radio show, I would uh, put it underneath social networking. Well, I, since then, I moved it to health, and we made it, I think, up within the top ten shows under health. Oh, wow. Shows. So, yeah, we got a lot of listens um, with Marvelyn Brown being on last week. Um, I think her show was listened to like 250 times it was downloaded. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it kind of bumped us up there. So we're getting popular. <laughs> Excellent. I love I love it, um, that there's the ability to download, you know, because a lot of people it's not really convenient to, like, be listening, especially, you know, Wednesday at 2. But um, but the, the fact that you can download the shows afterwards is great, I think. Oh, technology. Technology. It's amazing. Yeah, right. Ten years from now, we'll be like, I don't know how we ever made it without all this before. Well, think of me. Like, ten years ago, now I'm like, I don't know how I ever survived without a cell phone. Um, yeah, right. Or, or a PC or, or, like, all that stuff. So, but I don't know, you know. Kind of interesting. So today we have um, on one of uh, one of my friends. I met him on Facebook, and uh, he, he's a great guy. He does a lot of great work. His name is Brandon Maxada, and he was first diagnosed HIV positive in March of 2002. And he's dedicated much of his professional and personal life advocating for persons living with AIDS. He currently serves as a CEO for the ADAP Advocacy Association, or the AAA Plus. Um, a national nonprofit organization working to improve AIDS drug assistance programs. And he will also be discussing the event that's run by that organization um, called the Early Treatment of HIV Summit, and that will be held in Washington, D.C., July 20th and 21st. And actually, I will be speaking at that event, and so will some other members of PAZ-IM. 
Oh, cool. I'm actually really interested to get his input on early treatment because um, we, I mean, I actually, I don't think we've ever, I've ever done this show with you where there's actual a, do a doctor, a medical doctor that you can, I can reference, but I get that question a lot where when people are still, because it used to be um, a common, um, you know, the common practice was, you know, give people meds until their T cell count drops below a certain number, like 500, or I don't know what they used to say, but, um, and now it's, cha it's changing, and there's different viewpoints on that, and so that'll be interesting to talk to him about that. And I want to know the future of ADAP, too. I'm sure he has a good, he's tapped in on that information, because with all the federal funding cuts, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens to that, which is very useful to a lot of people in the HIV community, so. Right trying to see where he's at because he should be calling in now. But I do, um, I just did send out the newsletter. Um, I saw that you got it earlier already. Um, and it has all the upcoming shows um, for July. And we have a couple interesting shows coming up um, this week. So let's see, uh, before he comes on, on Sunday, July 5th, we have Nicholas Snow, who um, you can find out more about him at actionequalslife.com. And then on Wednesday, next Wednesday, Jack, we're going to have John Doran, who is the West Hollywood uh, City Council member. Right. I saw and that. He, yeah, yeah. And he's one of the very few um, public elected officials who are open about their status. So it's kind of cool to have somebody uh, who's out there in, in that field to, to come on and, and speak about their experiences. Yeah. I think I have Brandon here, so I'm going to bring him on the line. I can click on it. Brandon, welcome to Positive Radio. Hey, Robert. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good for an old man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you're funny. How old are well, how you? Your... Uh, 36. Oh, please, save it. <laughs> <laughs> I, got you, I, got, I got you beat by four years, so. After the last couple of weeks, I feel like I'm about 56, maybe even older. I know that feeling. Yeah, after Pride, I think I, I needed to, like 48 hours of like horizontal rest. So, not all of us are spring chickens like uh, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I'm only 30. I mean, I'm 30. That's old enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, um, I wanted you to come on and um, talk about different things, especially this event that's coming up. But, um, before we touch on the event and things of that nature, I wanted to talk about your um, your group. Um, I can't say the second word, and I didn't want to butcher it on air. Um, the Maxada what is Cornegie. it? Cornegie. Mm -hmm. Group. Uh, Maxada Cornegie Group. We are a, a private consulting firm that specializes in uh, political consulting, public relations, and fundraising. Uh, we do events with. Uh, we do a lot of work with the nonprofit organizations, uh, specifically organizations that work on healthcare, HIV, AIDS, and, and disability-related issues. And then we also, uh, from time to time, will actually work for uh, political candidates, candidates for, for office, uh, sometimes state office such as governor, uh, but more typically uh, races for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, although we have from time to time even worked on some local races as well. Uh, the second name in that group is Amanda Cornegie. That is my business partner who is a, uh, a political fundraiser. 
Oh, I see. Cool. And what made you want to get involved with that? Is it something that, you know, interested you when you were younger or? Uh, well, like I, you, I, you know, of course, when, you, when I graduated college and I had to decide you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, you know, tried several different um, work-related activities, uh, was insurance for a while, was in assisted living for a while, and just felt a calling uh, to go up to Washington and get involved in policy work. And at the time, uh, this was around 1999, 2000, uh, moved up to Washington, D.C., and actually was uh, fortunate enough to become a, an executive director of a very small trade association that represented uh, nonprofit service providers uh, of employment services, support services for people with disabilities, and did that for about three, three or four years. And then um, kind of got tired of the cold, got tired of the winters, and wanted to move south and decided I would use it as an opportunity to go out on my own, spread my wings, and uh, go into business for myself. Uh, and about a year and a half into um, having a company called Mixada & Associates, um, Amanda came into business with me, uh, became my business partner, and that is when we started the Mixada Carnegie Group and have been working with, like I said, nonprofits and uh, political candidates for uh, about the last five or six years. Paul, um, yeah, I just tried. To, I just friended you like an hour ago on Facebook. So, <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait, you're in Florida, like, what's all this DC talk? But yeah, I got it. So it's all clear now. Okay. I'm a little slow on the uptake, so forgive me. No problem. <laughs> so, um, when you were diagnosed in 2002. Mm-hmm. HIV positive. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that experience of you being diagnosed and, and what you went through, you know, emotionally and all that? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny because when I was uh, in Washington at the time, I, as I referenced earlier, I was the executive director of a, a, an organization that worked on disability issues. So I, you know, had a lot of colleagues and personal friends who had um, all sorts of disabilities, whether it was a physical disability, uh, cognitive disability, um, you know, folks who were uh, friends who were blind, maybe um, hearing impaired. So I really got to, you know, kind of had my eyes open to the, the broader disability community and, you know, had a little bit of exposure to uh, friends who were living with HIV um, and did a little bit of policy work on HIV. But I think the, the, the work that I did on disability really showed me that, you know, uh, people with disabilities are no different than people without disabilities. Um, so in 2000, late 2001, early 2002 was not a very good time personally uh, in my life, and uh, unfortunately I'm one of those people where the stigma associated with HIV uh, is directly related to how I became infected because the, the person I was dated at the time uh, didn't feel it was important to share with me that he was positive because he had not accepted it, um, and therefore that is how I ended up um, becoming HIV positive. And when I tested positive, um, I kind of went from zero to 60 in a matter of seconds. Uh, I was a, an acute, a case of acute serial conversion. Uh, my initial diagnosis was actually full-blown AIDS. Uh, within a matter of about two weeks, uh, viral load was pushing 800,000 copies. Uh, my CD4 count, my white blood cell count, was uh, around 200. And I think I had about six opportunistic infections. 
um, lost 21 pounds in 17 days, uh, and was in very rough shape. Uh, and, wow. But emotionally, you'd be surprised at how well I, I, I accepted it because of, again, this is where I, I go back to the work I had done on disability. You know, friends, and, and in many cases mentors, people who had, had been born with a, a cognitive disability or um, developmental disability, you know, these people had been living with their their disability their entire lives. And I look at how they, they managed, you know, to go to school, how they managed to go to law school, how they managed to find very meaningful employment, how they had families. You know, and I thought to myself, these people are role models. Uh, these friends are role models for me, and I've been very fortunate, um, and I'm not going to let this diagnosis uh, change my life. Um, and I, I pretty much embraced it very quickly. Uh, I didn't let it define me. I didn't let it change me. And that's not to say it didn't, you know, knock me on my rear end a couple of times. It, it took me a good six months before I was back on my feet. Um, and, you know, I waited that amount of time before I went and told my family because when I I knew I had to tell my family um, because that's just the, the relationship that I have with my parents and my sister. Uh, but I wanted to, I wanted them to be able to look at me and know that I wasn't going to die because I think a lot of people still have that mindset in their heads that if you're HIV positive, oh, well, it's still that death sentence of the, of the 80s and early 90s. Uh, you know, I wanted to be um, not looking, um, you know, as, as bad as I did, um, and I wanted to emotionally be in a good place to be able to have that conversation with them. So, you know, about six months later, I... I told my family, and of course they took it to, to heart, and, and they had to adjust a little bit uh, because they were scared. Uh, but they, you know, kind of came to me and were very embracing of it, and said, you know, teach us. We want to know everything we need to know about this disease and, and what it's like. And you know, provided me an opportunity to share with them that it's it's really now HIV is very much like a chronic disease. If, and this is the big if, if you decide to take care of yourself, uh, go to the doctor, seek treatment. Um, in some cases, it's going on antiretrovirals. Other times, a physician may decide to, um, you know, postpone the, the medication treatment. But the, the key is being able to take care of yourself. Right, and that's in all aspects, not just, you know, going to the doctors, but emotionally and support-wise. And, yeah. and that's actually a really good segue to one of the uh, issues I wanted to ask you about, which... Um, Robert read at the opening of the show in your bio about this um, sum that you're doing about early treatment of HIV. And yeah, I think this is actually a good sort of forum for us to talk about it because I went on, I mean, I've been positive for 20 years, and I actually went on medication as soon as it was available, which was there was nothing. There was AZT, and then a few others came along. But, um, but Robert doesn't take any medication. And, Robert, how long have you been positive? Um, eight years. And then, I mean, and that's a question that I get a lot from people that are reaching out to me through Facebook or whatever on the Internet and are like, you know, my doctor says this, my doctor says that. What, what, what has been your experience on, like, the, the, the information that's out there currently about, you know, early, early medicating and early treatment of HIV? Well, I think there's so many aspects um, behind why we decided to, to host this, our, our early treatment for HIV summit. And really, treatment is, is kind of misleading because we're, we're trying to cover all aspects. We're, we're trying to cover, um, you know, early prevention, uh, early diagnosis, early access to care, and early treatment. Um, so it, it's really kind of trying to cover the, the entire spectrum, uh, right. especially after the, the last eight years where we've seen 
how bad a policy such as abstinence-only education and what, what has resulted from such a bad public policy. Um, the number of new infections, you know, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention releasing that, you know, they've actually revised the number of infections that have been um, that occur each year from 40,000 to, you know, 54,000 plus. Um, and I think abstinence-only had a lot uh, to do with that, that it's just it was a very narrow-minded policy that I think has, has really played poorly here in the United States. So we wanted to be able to cover the prevention aspect, um, the diagnosis, being able to, to diagnose it. Um, and in, in that diagnosis, I think, is the uh, addressing stigma. You know, in my case, I'm, I'm positive because somebody didn't want to face up to his diagnosis and therefore didn't share it with me. Um, but then beyond that is, is, you know, when somebody is diagnosed, um, you know, getting them into care and if that care does involve treatment. And I think, you know, a lot of the recent medical studies have pretty much shown that the earlier you can treat someone, uh, the more better off it will be in terms of their health and, and productivity. Um, now, that may or may not involve medication. And in my case, it has to involve medication um, because of the, the acute serial conversion and the, the nature of the, the virus that I have. Uh, my doctor tried to take me on a... Um, a treatment interruption. She tried to take me off my medication and didn't even last three or four months. You know, my numbers just shot right back up uh, to a very dangerous level, in, in her opinion, so she put me back on, on medication. But definitely the, the, the research is there that the earlier we can um, get people into medical treatment, um, the, the earlier we can put people on medications, that the, the better off it will be um, for their health. Now, in a case, now that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, well, God, in Robert's case, he's, he's been positive for eight years and he's not on medication. I'm, what I'm saying is not that, you know, Robert's made a mistake, what, what, because in Robert's case, he has been able to stabilize with the virus and he's doing very well and he's taking care of himself. Um, right. Where, where it becomes important is when, especially somebody doesn't know they're positive, um, either they just don't know or maybe they suspect they are positive, but they don't want to admit it so they don't get, uh, they don't go and, and seek uh, testing. You know, and then their body just kind of ravages to the disease over time and then come to find out eight years later, well, maybe I need to do something. You know, maybe it was a, an infection that spurred up and they're forced to, to, to seek uh, testing because they're in the emergency room. You know, that, those are the cases where that's kind of time lost. And it's in a, it's, 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 the studies are showing that during that time where you could have been in seeking care and seeking treatment, that the, the virus has been really ravaging the, the immune system and makes it much harder for that person to, to live um, as long as somebody who has sought treatment and, and or has been on medication to control the virus. Right. And I, think, I think, go ahead. I was going to say, and that, that's the impo one of the important aspects that we're going to address in the, the summit during the early, HIV, early treatment for HIV summit is, you know, what a, having medical professionals there uh, physicians, pharmaceutical companies, um, other health professionals who can share with uh, attendees the the medical data that's there as to why it's important to you know get access to care and and if if, if required to have access to medications. Which I think it, you know it's it's indisputable that anyone who's in a in a risk group, high risk group, has any risk at all should be getting tested for HIV on a regular basis. That's, that's, I think that's sort of un inarguable. And then beyond that, when you, when you address treatment for people, if you are HIV positive, 
treatment may involve drugs, like you said, it may not, but you should be still getting your blood work done on a regular basis to keep make sure that, like you said, your viral load is um, undetectable or at least very low and that your T cell count is uh, is at a respectable level and, you know, so you don't have to worry about opportunistic infections. Right, and, and that's, the, that's the key thing about, you know, the, the medication aspect is because everybody, you know, there are different strains of the virus, A, and then everybody's body handles, the, handles uh, medical conditions, uh, medical trauma differently, and that's point B. Uh, and you have to be able to weigh the both of those. And if, if it's a case where, you know, um, someone is, is, has been tested positive, has gone to the doctor, and the doctor has made a medical evaluation that this person is doing okay, that his body, his immune system is, is, hand, is keeping the virus in check, and, you know, the way they measure that is, like you said, the viral load and the, the CD4 count. Now, you know, if, if the CD4 count is staying high and, and the immune system is staying healthy, and the viral load is, is staying stable at a lower level, and the lower level the better, then they can make that determination that the person doesn't need to go on medication. But, you know, if you don't go, and that's where I go back to, it's, it's about access to care and, and or treatment. If you're not going to go seek out medical care and, med, you know, accessing your physician and the knowledge of that professional, then you have no idea what the virus is doing to your body. Uh, you have no idea what it's doing to your immune system. And the longer you go without seeking that care, then it makes it to the point where when you do finally, and maybe you're forced to finally seek that care, even if treatment medication is an option, by that point you've already kind of put yourself behind the eight ball. Right. Which I also want to just kind of mention and touch on something else that you brought up a couple times, which is why we have to all keep talking about this and doing the work that we do, because the stigma is uh, that surrounds being HIV positive is, you know, prevents a lot of people from getting tested. If you said people don't want to know because they don't want to admit to it, that played into how you sort of converted because the person you were dating was not forthcoming with their information because of the stigma, because of shame or embarrassment, or I don't really know what the personal circumstances were. But, you know, if that was all not an issue, we would, you know, getting tested wouldn't be a big deal. Like, and we'd have a lot more people being honest with their partners, being honest with their doctors, you know. There's just a myriad of issues that are affected by the stigma of HIV. Well, that, that's a, that is a very good point because it's, there's still, you know, and it's associated with the stigma, but there still is a lot of education that needs to be done. Um, there's still a lot of people in, in this country who feel that the only people who are at risk for HIV are men who have sex with men and um, intravenous drug users. Drug users. Um, and it, they just kind of automatically classify themselves as, well, I'm not in one of those two um, at-risk groups, so therefore I don't need to worry about it. Yet for African-American women, uh, under the age of 30, half of African-American women under the age of 30 who die, die of HIV-related, AIDS-related causes. So right. clearly, um, you know, they don't think that they're in that, that risk group, um, you know, and that's just one subset of uh, the, the population that we see, the expanding number of new infections within the population that we see as African-American women. Um, you know, but it, it, there's so many other things that, that come into play and so much of it has to do with the, the stigma, the negative stigma that's attached to it. And unfortunately, we go back to it. If you're afraid to find out you're HIV positive, you're not going to go get tested, so you don't right. know. 
and therefore you might be putting somebody at risk, uh, you know, a, a partner, a boyfriend, a girlfriend at risk because you don't know. Um, you're putting yourself at greater risk because, it, you know, again, back to the point about what's happening to your immune system during this process. Um, you know, and there could be a lot of reasons. It's, maybe it's family rejection, and unfortunately uh, there's a lot of families who, who will reject their, the loved one who, who discloses their, their status. I mean, not everyone right. is, is fortunate like myself and my family who, you know, didn't change how much they loved me and supported me. Um, you know, maybe it's they're the only doctor in the community is the doctor they've been going to their whole lives, and there's no way they feel comfortable going to that doctor. You know, maybe they're afraid their employer is going to find out if they have an insurance claim. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's really about educating themselves on, and I think the, the AIDS community needs to do a better job at making available resources so that folks know, okay, I'm newly tested positive, I want to go to my doctor, but I'm afraid my employer is going to find out. What are my rights? as a employee for this company. Uh, you know, and I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, there are companies like um, Walmart, IBM, Walgreens, who Starbucks who have amazing track records for employees with disabilities, including people living with HIV AIDS. Um, it's not the stereotypical image of my employer's gonna find out and I'm gonna get canned. Um, right. There are companies that do that, and that's why you need to know your rights. But there are other companies who have amazing track records and have basically uh, been leading the way on diversity of all kinds, including HIV and AIDS. And, and often what employers don't realize is if they have an employee who, who's living with HIV, you know, they often could be making an accommod a workplace accommodation for them that they don't even realize they're already doing. For example, maybe it's just flex time so that they have time to go to their doctor or go to get their uh, testing uh, or go to get their medication. And it might be the same accommodation that they're making to a, a, a pregnant mother who's going for her prenatal care. You know, it's, it's, work, it's workplace flexibility that allows that mother to go get her, her screenings. Same thing. It would be the same accommodation to an employee with HIV AIDS. And I think a lot of times when employers realize, oh, this is all I need to do, no big deal. As long as my employee's productive, that's all I care about. Right. There are certain, I know there are certain state laws that actually still allow them to fire you under being HIV positive because I know a friend of mine who worked at a restaurant in Pennsylvania and was fired because of his status and kind of they – had every there was a law that was in place that allowed them to fire for any reason. And of course um, they went well, to court and all that. That your friend was um, was terminated in violation of the uh, ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, and he probably right. should have sought an employment an attorney. Um, you know, just because there are, and you know, and this is getting into a whole other policy area, but you have what are called union states and right to work states, and right to work states are basically states that make it very hard for collective bargaining and, and union, unionization in the workplace. Uh, Florida is one such state, um, and just because a, an employer can dismiss you with or without cause, if you're able to determine and prove that that cause, the reason you were terminated was because of a health-related, disability-related reason, then you know, unfortunately for the employer. They've just violated the law. So, um, and I think that's what often people do not realize um, is that they do have rights. There are protections. Um, and the unfortunate thing is that the burden of proof does fall on the, the employee and not the employer. Um, so, but in that case, your friend, 
probably could have had a case if he was able to prove that uh, his employer terminated him simply because he was HIV positive. Right. I know that happens, you know, a lot, and a lot of people have questions about how they move forward with things like that, so that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up a little bit and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed, I know one of the things I wanted to mention was Saturday was um, National HIV Testing Day. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if your area, since we're all in different parts of, you know, the East Coast, for me in Philadelphia, I saw not one bit of news on it. Well, Robert, a, uh, there's not a problem with HIV or AIDS in America. That's the perception. Um, but, um, and I'm, I, that, I'm not just saying this is my opinion. There have been two recent reports that have come out, uh, one by the Kaiser uh, Family Foundation, and, um, of course, now I'm going to blank on it. Um, he's actually speaking at our conference, and if he's listening, he's probably going to whack me over the head. Um, but both of them, both of them came out with... Um, recent reports that have shown what's happening to uh, perceptions of HIV, AIDS in America. And it's really just, it's Public Agenda, that's the name of the organization that published the the second finding. There's a perception that HIV, AIDS is not a problem in America, um, that it's uh, it's something that's happening over in sub-Saharan Africa, that there aren't people dying in America, that there aren't people who don't have access to care, uh, you know, there's, they don't realize there are waiting lists for people trying to, to access life-saving medications. You know, the, the overall perception in this country is HIV-AIDS is not a problem. It's not a problem in this country. So why would the news media cover something that's not a problem? Why would you go get tested if, if it's not a problem, if that's the perception? And right. unfortunately, we need to be doing as a community a better job of of educating people of this is a problem. In fact, Robert, as you know, I flew out to California for a meeting mm-hmm. on Monday, um, and the whole purpose of this meeting was to what do we need to do as a community to draw more attention to, that, to the fact that there is a problem with HIV in this country. We have 56,000 Americans every year being infected. Beyond that, we have people who are uninsured or underinsured who do not have access to care. Beyond that, we know that... W- in terms of treatment and medication, that is one of the best things you can do to take care of yourself. Yet we now have 99, 99 maybe more, people in this country who are trying to access life-saving medications through the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, and they cannot because there's not enough funding. And when I say maybe more, there probably are more because it's all based on what the states report. Those numbers are only going to get worse as the economy gets worse. And what's really sad is we're sending out this message, go get tested find out if you're positive, yet if all these people went out and got tested and then tried to seek treatment, the system would not be able to take care of them because there's not enough money, the system is not well infrastructured to be able to handle a massive influx of people. So I always find it ironic when we send out this huge message, go get tested, you need to know your status, but yet we don't but when you find when you find it out, we can't take care of you. Right, but when you find out, we can't take care of you, and we're going to have to put you on a waiting list. So that that kind of segues into what I wanted to talk about, which you have a vast knowledge on about ADAP. Um, just because I I mean I I think it's a, been a great organization, and it's or whatever you want to call it, it's helped. I I've referred a ton of people to it. I know a ton of people that have been uninsured and 
have gotten their meds through ADAP, and I just kind of wanted to get your take on what you think the future of it is. Because, I, I mean, I've, I've known there to be cuts where they cut out certain things and um, just for funding purposes, but now that the economy is in the shape it's in, I'm just really concerned for a lot of people. Uh, well, the, the ADAP program is a, it, it's what's called the AIDS Drug Assistance Program. It is, right. uh, it is, um, it's authorized under the Ryan White Care Act, which is the only federal HIV uh, AIDS law um, in the country. And it is not an entitlement. It is a, a discretionary program. So every year we have to fight for funding. Um, and it's, it's, it's administered by the state. So New York has a program that is vastly different than South Dakota. And South right. Dakota has a program that's vastly different than Texas. Um, really, the, the only thing where similarities stop is to be eligible for the program, you have to be HIV positive, and you have to live in the state that you're applying for services. And after that, the similarities pretty much stop. Uh, the states can determine what's, what's, what drugs are on the formulary, and the formulary is basically the schedule of, of the class of drugs that are, that are covered by ADAP. Um, some, some states will have it where your drugs are delivered to you by mail. Others have it where you have to go pick them up at a pharmacy. You know, so they're very different. Um, and unfortunately, as we have seen throughout the course of uh, Ryan White and the course of the, the ADAPs, is the program is vastly underfunded. Um, and as a result of underfunding, uh, there are people placed on waiting lists. And, you know, it's, it's a case where it's not, only, it's not just about the funding, but the funding is, is where we always get drawn to, especially in Washington, especially on public policy, because it's the thing that people make, understand the most. Um, but unless, you know, President Obama proposed a small increase for the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, but quite frankly, his increase was not much better than what President Bush did. Uh, it was not much better than President Clinton did in the later years of his presidency. And I think until we really start to get organized and mobilized, like in the early 80s when, unfortunately, it was people dying that got act up to, to, to mobilize and become a strong force, there, there's the perception in Washington, again, that there's not a problem. So therefore, we only have to fund a little bit of money to take care of it instead of really addressing the problem so that there is a comprehensive system in place that can take care of the people who need, who need the care. I think one of the things that is missing right now is, I mean, the activists are out there, but they're not, they're not doing it like they used to do it in the 80s when people were dying. They're not vocal, you know what I mean? Like, I don't see them, like, out there like I did when I saw them on TV when I was, small, when I was younger. Well, well were, you know. that's the downside of, of anti-retro medication, you know. People right. aren't dying. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's great for us because we get to live healthier lives. We could live more productive lives. But it, it took the, the, the immediacy out of the movement because now people weren't di aren't dying on the streets. Um, you know, and once that happens, the complacency sets in. Um, you know, and again, the new, we go back to the, the earlier question about, you know, what do we need to do to get the news media to cover it? Again, without people dying, that's what gets the news media's interest. It's sad, but that's the, that's the way our society works. Um, right. And until we can develop a, a campaign that gets people aware of this disease and gets them to understand the importance of getting tested, of getting treatment, then we're just going to keep having this conversation over and over again. 
and that's one of the reasons why we, we started the, the ADAP Advocacy Association was to bring attention to this one particular issue within the HIV community, the AIDS Drug Assistance Programs, and really trying to send a clear message that how come we know one of the best things people can do is access care, access medication, and yet we have people on waiting lists across the country. And at one point, you know, back in 2005, 2006, we had people actually dying on waiting lists. We had people dying in South Carolina. We had people dying in Kentucky. We had people dying in West Virginia. How come people are dying in the wealthiest country in the, in, the, in the world when all we know they have to do is access those medications? And it's, it's as little as $1,000 a month per patient. So, you know, it comes back to we need to be able to create that immediacy again that, that existed, you know, in the 80s when that was unfortunately being driven by the fact that people were dying. And that being said, you know, it, it also, I mean, if someone's paying out of pocket for their meds, I, I think the sky's the limit on how much it can be per month. I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars just to get your meds, which I don't think people really realize until it hits them in the face. Well, and, you know, I'm someone who's been on ADAP. Um, you know, when I first went into business for myself uh, and first started, you know, had one client who paid me, you know, a nice retainer, but certainly it was enough just to pay my rent and buy me some food. And if I had to choose between my medications and food, guess what I'm going to choose? Right. Food, you know, and, you know, I had to go on the AIDS Drug Assistance Program because I didn't have insurance. And I needed the medication. Like I said, I, my doctor tried to take me off medication and was determined for health-related reasons I, I need to be on the medication. So, you know, I had to go on to the AIDS Drug Assistance Program. It, it's not a, a fun process because you have to be able to prove uh, where, you know, where I was uh, in the District of Columbia, you know, the, the process that I had to go through is you had to prove your eligibility. You know, so there's a certain... Um, there's a certain element of, you know, being ashamed that you're doing this there's a certain element of, of opening up your privacy, your own private world, to you know giving people returns that show you know how much money you make. But right. that's what you have to do. And uh, until we have uh, you know a system that's in place that allows people to access this care easily, readily, uh, timely, then it's just we're just going to keep we're just going to keep seeing people um, not go get tested, uh, not seek treatment, and not go on the medication. Right, and just so people know, the ADAP is, it's, I mean, like you said, it's different in every state, but as much I know about it here in New York, it, it is income-based. There's a certain maximum income that you can make. Like you said, you had to submit um, tax returns and pay subs, and you have to get uh, some sort of uh, authorized letter from your doctor or hospital that says you are HIV positive. There are certain steps you have to go through, um, but, you know, it's like with any state or federal um, assistance service. There's there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, but I do think it's a great program. That's why it needs funding. It is a great pro it is a great program, and it, it comes back to something I said earlier that if you make the choice that you want to take care of yourself, and if that's the choice you make, and it involves you know you're you're uninsured or underinsured, and you and there is a program that can help you, then yes, you you make a little bit of a sacrifice if in the end it's going to help you. Um, take care of yourself. Um, and unfortunately, there are people who make the choice, that, you know, whether it's because of the stigma of the disease or emotionally they just haven't accepted it. You know, I have friends who are newly diagnosed, and the first thing they're going out doing is, 
you know, binge drinking or, you know, doing some sort of illicit drug or partying all night, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, your body is already being taxed at such a level. The last thing you need to be doing is going out and partying all night and destroying your immune system further. But there are people who, you know, friends that I have, that that's the way they've coped with it. And, again, I come back to I think they feel that they don't have any other option, so, therefore, the best way to do it is just to avoid it and not accept it. Um, but unfortunately, there is, there is a feeling that there's not enough support that's out there for people. Uh, that's one of the things that I, I love what you guys do with your radio program and, and Robert with his social networking is, you know, one of the best things that can be made available to people who are newly diagnosed is letting them know you're not alone. And right. you're going to be okay if you decide to take care of yourself. Um, that there are people out there who have been, you know, in your case, you've been living for 20 years. That's amazing. To me, that's an amazing story to tell. And that's an inspiration for somebody who just got tested today and found out he or she's positive. You know, to be able to look at somebody and say, okay, my life isn't over. Right. Well, I also think, you know, that's, you made a really good point that there should be an easy an easy second step. Okay, so now you're tested and now you found out you're HIV positive. I get emails all the time from people that say, I just found out, I'm really struggling, I don't know what to do, I don't know, I'm getting mixed messages from this and that and the other. I mean, it would be great if there was some sort of federal or state-based site where you could say, like, here's what you qualify for, here's programs. I mean, maybe I'm just not educated in all the... The, the information that's out there, but it seems like a centralized, some sort of centralized how-to kit would be really helpful for a lot of people that just don't know what steps to take after they get the positive diagnosis. Right. Well, that's actually an idea that uh, the ADEP Advocacy Association has, has flirted with, is trying to find a couple of uh, other AIDS organizations to partner with, uh, seek grants and, and other funding, and kind of, uh, if you will, a one-stop shop. Uh, you know, a web portal that you can go to and, you know, you could type in your zip code and it'll tell you these are the HIV specialists in your area. Um, right. You know, here, what, if you need assistance, that you know, here's a link to the AIDS drug assistance program where you can download the application. Um, you know, having other links to, to POSIAM where you could see, where you can join a social networking site so that you can communicate with people and in, in publicly or privately about the disease and what it's like to live with HIV. Um, there's not really a one-stop one shop that you could go to and have all those resources at your fingertips. And I think it's something that is definitely, there's a need. Uh, it's just like anything else, being able to find the funding to be able to, to, to execute it. Right. To me, I, I'm just so shocked that something like that isn't available right now. Like I really am. I just I just always assumed that there was some sort of a site where people could go to when they're newly diagnosed and just find all this information and it would be easy. And I, I mean, mean, I'm shocked. There are I there mean, are a lot of sites, you know. Right. I mean, That's what I was going to say. They're they're all over. They're scat. You know, there's a site you could go to to find a local um, aid service organization in your area. And, you know, there's another site that you can go to to find out what what pharmacy programs are available. You know, oftentimes people don't even realize that. The pharmaceutical companies have patient assistance programs where, you know, you're uninsured, you're underinsured, uh, maybe you don't even qualify for ADAP, you know, but that you can go to the, the, the actual individual company and apply for, and this isn't the right word, but apply for a scholarship where they'll pay for, the company will waive 
the fees associated with their medication. Um, you know, people don't realize that that stuff is, is out there. And again, it, there, there are a lot of resources, but they're scattered all over the place. And, and quite frankly, if I just found out, if I'm 22 years old and I just found out today that I'm HIV positive and my family maybe is already having an issue with the fact that I'm gay, do you think I'm really going to sit down and try and find all these resources? No. Because you're overwhelmed, right. you, you know, you feel like you, your whole life's just been turned upside down. You probably feel like you're the only one who's dealing with this issue right now. So the last thing you're going to do is make, probably make that commitment to sit down and find all these places, whereas it would be really much more beneficial for people who are newly diagnosed and people who have been living with the disease for 20 years and maybe they've moved from one state to another. You know, to be able to go to one place and say, okay, this is what I needed. Right. We'll get to work on that. <laughs> get to work on that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, because it, it's, it's especially tough for people who are, you know, in the rural areas like I am, where they don't have the aid service organizations, you know, like a 10-minute bus ride away or a block down the street. You know, it's very important for the, the information to be online and, and to be easily found. Well, and, and Robert, your point raises a whole other issue within the advocacy movement, and that is, you know, back in the, the 80s and early 90s when, when AIDS first, you know, showed its ugly face, it was hitting the cities. It was hitting the big metropolitan areas, the New York City, the, the Chicago, the San Francisco, the Los Angeles. That's not the case in today. Those big cities have, in many cases, designed systems care systems that have been able to really deal with the disease. What's, what we see happening now is it's the small rural communities, especially in the South, that are being devastated by this disease because there is no system in place. That's where the stigma is even worse. Um, and you have infection rates going through the roof in small southern rural towns. Um, and again, it comes back to even if these people went and got tested, and found out they were positive, there is not a system in place that would allow them to seek the appropriate care and or treatment. Um, and there, you know, there, this is an ongoing discussion within the HIV AIDS community that the money should follow the disease. You know, but you have those who think that you know, we should be directing more money uh, to, the, to the epicenter, the problems with, where we see the disease um, affecting more people. But then you have the other hand of, does that mean you take more money from the cities? Um, and I, I guess it comes back to would we be robbing Peter to pay Paul? Um, right. And that's why the issue of funding, again, it comes back to funding in that if there, were a, there was an appropriate level of funding, we would be able to do both. We would be able to take care of the metropolitan areas as well as the, the new hot spots of where the infection is, uh, is spreading. You know, and we even there's even a complacency within the HI, within the gay community right now. And you would think the last community on this planet, on the, in this country, where there would be complacency is HIV, HIV within the AIDS, in the gay community. But yet there is. You know, it does. People don't gay people don't want to talk about it. They don't think they're at risk. And if they do get it, you know what? All I have to do is go on the medications, and I'll be fine. Um, well, you know, it's, it's actually I find myself in that situation where you're walking a, a fine line where you want to console people and give them hope and say, like, listen, you know, it's not a death sentence anymore like it used to be. But how do you temper that with also, you know, keeping people from being irresponsible and 
keeping them on track with safe, safe behavior when there's not the, that risk factor that they're used to, that used to scare people into, you know, safety and protecting themselves. It's, it's, it's that, you know, it, it ties in with the fact that we don't get press and we don't get funding because people are dying. Well, if there's not a sense of urgency and a fear factor, then complacency sets in, and that's unfortunate. And that's it's this ongoing discussion of how do you keep that from happening, and how do you draw attention back to it, and how do you, you know, raise awareness again when people seem to think it's just like, oh, I take a pill, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. So. It's a shame. And that's why, you know, and that's why we do the radio show here and we have people come on and share their stories so, you know, people see that it's still something that's affecting, you know, our country and, and it's important to allow people to feel that they're not alone. That's um, really important. I know it was my... And I mean, I, I, like, I think there, there, there are a lot of great resources. There are a lot of great um, things like the AIDS Drug Distance Program. There are, there, there are a lot of great things out there, but... You know, also, like you said, you can't expect a newly diagnosed 21, 22-year-old young kid who's dealing with their own family issues and all this pressure and God knows what, that's a hard enough time in your life to be doing all this research, trying to figure out if they can get insurance, trying to figure out if they can get their drugs if they're uninsured. It's like, it just can be a mess. And I mean, it's like, you wish you had an easy answer for that and for that person and it's just not there. It's true because I was that was the exact age that I was when I was diagnosed and the exact feelings that I was going through where I still had issues with me being gay and I didn't feel comfortable and it led me into denial and into like we were talking earlier to partying and drug use because I was trying to hide from it and uh, you know it takes a while to finally accept your status but once you get over that hump it's you know like it's like a whole like weight just came right off your shoulders and you feel like so much different once you accept it I think. Well, and unfortunately, Robert, we, we come back to kind of where we started the, the conversation, that is that stigma. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. think about somebody says, I'm HIV positive, and oftentimes the reaction is, oh, my God, you're going to die, or, oh, my God, I, I can't date you because you're HIV positive, or you can't work in my company because you're HIV positive, back to your friend in, in, in Pennsylvania. Right. Um, yet in 2006, there were just over 14,000 deaths related to HIV AIDS. The same year, there were over 36,000 deaths related to the flu. So you're over more than two and a half times likely to die from the flu, but yet how many times have you thought of somebody who had the flu and yet without even thinking about it, you just go over to their house maybe to to drop off some some soup or something like that, yet you just exposed yourself to the flu virus. So you're two and a half more times likely to die of the flu, and yet it's, it's just commonly accepted, oh, it's no big deal. You know, yeah, I don't want to get sick, but oh, it's no big deal. But yet, with HIV, there's automatically that negative stigma associated with it. And, and I don't know whether it's because it's it, a lot of people just don't understand it. If it goes back to there's still a lot of people who just think that, well, if, unless you're gay or having sex with men or shooting up intravenous drugs, then I, I'm, not, I'm not at risk. And I have friends. I have straight male friends who have had conversations with them about being safe and their response was, well, I'm not gay. I don't need to worry about it. And I want to just strangle them because I can't believe that in, you know, 2009 I'm hearing this come out of somebody's mouth. Wow. Yeah, and I also, it, it's interesting about this stigma. I mean, that's a question I get asked a lot, and I actually did an interview earlier today, and I think that there's some element of it, too, that 
that's intertwined with homophobia and um, even though it's not necessarily a gay disease, but, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of people that still think it is, but that somehow as gay men or who are the, the primary um, most infected, affected group in the U.S., that we somehow brought it on ourselves by our behavior and that's, that it's okay for us to, you know, be judged on the fact that we're HIV positive. And I just think there's a, there's a different people look at it differently. I mean, if you think of someone who's dealing with cancer, or like you said, the, you know, any other disease, they're like fighters and survivors. And, you know, and when it comes to HIV, there's somehow you're expected to be ashamed of it. And, um, you know, I refuse to take that stance and take that position. Well, you know, unfortunately, um, well, our organization, the ADAP Advocacy Association, we did a, a white paper, if you will, comparing what the U.S. spends on domestic HIV programs uh, and comparing it to what the U.S. spends as part of uh, PEPFAR, the, um, the president's, uh, the emergency plan for AIDS relief that the president, uh, President Bush announced, you know, some years ago and has been continued under uh, President Obama. And you'd be amazed at how much money we send overseas to help people in, in other countries living with the disease compared to what we spend here at home. And this analysis, you know, basically said not that we're saying sending money overseas to help poor and impoverished countries is wrong. We, we support that. But yet when you compare what's happening here in this country and what's being spent and the fact that our system is not uh, keeping up with the disease, it really sets a very striking comparison to be able to, to look at that. Um, and I, I just, it blows my mind. And I think part of the reason why we see that, that dichotomy you look at images, um, if you, can, you can pull up any PEP, PEPFAR annual report and you see images, and it, they're images of small children smiling, living, looking good, looking healthy, and it's, it, the image portrayed is this was a poor innocent victim and the United States has stepped in and has helped this person. Then you pull up images here at home, and it's usually of you know, an IV drug, you know, black and white picture of an IV drug user sitting on a street corner or an image of a, a promiscuous gay man uh, parading around. You know, and it's just, there's a striking difference between how HIV AIDS is perceived in this country versus other countries. And right. we come back to, as you said earlier, the stigma associated with um, the, the link between uh, being gay and when the disease first started. Um, and I don't think we've gotten past that, and I think we do need to get past that. And you could look at the statistic I said to you earlier. African-American women under the age of 30, half of the deaths are related to HIV and AIDS. And until we get the funding parity here at home with funding that's going overseas, I think we're just going to keep seeing waiting lists. We're going to keep seeing people dying. We're going to keep seeing people not want to go get tested, not want to seek treatment. And even if they can, there might not be the money to, to pay for the treatment, pay for the drugs. So, Brandon, if someone's listening and they want to, you know, write a letter to, a, you know, a specific person, is there somebody that they can address if they wanted to, you know, try to uh, put their voice out there? Would there be somebody you would recommend in D.C.? Well, the, the best thing whenever you're doing advocacy is um, the people who listen to you the most are, are the people who are representing you. So what you would need to do is, is find out who is your congressman or congresswoman and who are your two senators. And those are the people you should be writing. And again, this, this is part of the way our, our system of government is set up. If they don't hear from people on a particular issue, then it's not an issue. Um, you know, I, 
it, wouldn't it be great if we were able to flood congressional offices, the switchboard on, on the U.S. Capitol, with calls at the same level when the news broke that the AIG executives were getting bonuses after the bailout? I mean, the, the congressional switchboard actually shut down on numerous occasions because there were so many constituents calling Capitol Hill to complain, why are these executives getting bonuses after we, the taxpayers, just bailed them out? But we don't do that as an H in our community, and that's what we need to do. So you need to find out who's your rep, who are your two senators. You need to call their offices. You need to, to well, and today you really need to write them an email because the snail mail, there's a, <laughs> with, with anthrax, it goes through a very long process. So you may write a letter today, and they might not get it till a month from now. So Until they're out of office. Right, out of office. So. <laughs> But that's the first step, is you need to find out who your representatives are, and you need to communicate with them that, hey, this is an issue. And whether you're positive or negative, I mean, we have just as many allies in the HIV community who are not positive. They're HIV negative, but they understand the importance of this issue, and maybe it's because they have a loved one or a friend who, who is positive. Um, and it's being able to communicate that message to Congress that this is a priority, and you need to pay attention. Um, unfortunately, we did a a random sample. We, we pulled up 30 websites last year, congressional websites, and we purposely stayed away from, from folks who we knew were leaders in the HIV community. But we pulled up 30 congressional websites randomly. Not one single one even mentioned HIV. Again, why do you think? They, they probably don't even think it's an issue. Why don't they right. think it's an issue? Because nobody's calling them, nobody's writing them, nobody's going to their congressional office and visiting them. That's one of the reasons why we're having this, this conference in July, late a couple weeks, is so that people can come and learn from the experts, from policymakers, from medical professionals, and then take that information, go up to their congressional offices, sit down with their member of Congress or the staff, and educate them and say, hey, I'm positive. This is what's happening to me in, in your district. You're my representative. What are you going to do about it? Right. Sounds good, Brandon. That's why I look so for it. I, I mean, so much I learned from you just in this conversation here. Me um, too. He's a great speaker, first off. You know what I mean? Like, you flow great. But I actually am looking so forward to coming to see you and meet you in July to, at that event. Can you just let people know? I know we're down to like a minute. Just let people know um, where they can find information. I put the link in the chat room, but just vocally, where they can sure, find the out if there's still room. Sure. The conference is being held in Washington July 20th and 21st. Um, you can find out information online at www.adapadvocacyassociation.org, all one word, adapadvocacyassociation.org. There you go. And there is room that people can still come, right? Yes. And Brandon's super cute also, so you should go see him. <laughs> I see your picture on I see your picture on CNN. Don't deny it. Right. Well, my fian my fiance would probably agree with you, and I definitely know my mother would agree with you. <laughs> well, Brandon, thanks for coming on today and, and talking with us, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And have a uh, have a good one. Thank you. Bye bye. I want to thank everyone for tuning in, and you can find out more information about Jack McEnroth at jackmackenroth.com. And you can find information about the radio show at posim.com. And we're on Twitter and all over. Uh, do you have anything coming up quickly that you can tell us about? Or? I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, no news is good news, so we're good. That's very, very true. Well, enjoy the rest of the weekend. I'll see you next week, Jack. All right, Mr. You too. Bye-bye.
Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Have a great Wednesday. Bye-bye.